Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Pekulski. As always, framing this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And as a coach and trainer and now mentor to coach and trainers, uh, one of my primary indicators of how to train, ultimately how the system, the human system, is uh, able and prepared to adapt is this science of heart rate variability. And this is something that I teach uh, a lot and I talk about a lot in my coaching and my mentorships because I really believe that in order to receive a signal, so as, as athletes, as, as people who train, we are um, imparting a signal on our body and we're, we're trying to lift this weight or do this exercise and we want the signal to be received by the body. So the signal is only half of the equation, right? The signal is, is a big external piece, but also the internal reaction, the internal response is incredibly important. And if you don't take that into account and acknowledge what state is this system in that I'm actually subjecting this signal to, it's impossible for you to know how those two things are gonna interact and therefore impossible for you to know ultimately how the results are going to progress. So if you wanna have a greater understanding of how to design a program, how to get better results, how to ultimately um, progress toward your, your ideal goal, whether that be physical goal or athletic goal, or even just removing stress, understanding how the autonomic nervous system works is imperative to your success. So heart rate variability is the measure of the autonomic nervous system. And today's guest is uh, certainly one of the experts in the entire world that I've ever come across uh, in the area of heart rate variability. Dr. Jay Wiles joins me today to give us the deep dive and understand everything there is to know about heart rate variability. Now, there is parts of this podcast that are high level and, and great for everyone. There's certainly parts of this podcast that are deep and you're gonna wanna take out a pen and paper and understand this at a deep level. Today's podcast is brought to you by my favorite enzymes on the planet, by Optimizers. Masszymes is one of my absolute favorite products that I use daily. I've recently started back on a ketogenic diet, so I've also been using the product Capex, uh, which is a, um, an incredible support system for digestion and assimilation and uh, ultimately utilization of fats. And the third product that I've been adding in that I want you guys to all pay attention to is P3O probiotics. And it's unbelievable. It's probiotics that are really, really great for healing the gut. And I think when we're stressed, people don't acknowledge the interaction between the mind and the brain. When you're stressed psychologically, which I think everyone in the entire world is right now because of this entire fear-based uh, stuff that's being propagated, um, we're all stressed. And gut health is imperative to ultimately thriving physically and mentally. I think some people get into this state of anxiety and overwhelm and don't acknowledge that oftentimes it's actually a physiological thing rather than a psychological thing. Because the psychology is how it manifests, people don't realize that oftentimes this psychology is a result of our physiology, which means maybe our heart rate isn't working correctly or, or we're overstressed or our gut is inflamed. And all these things are, are contributing to this sympathetic stress, which you can learn about today. Uh, and you need to heal that. So those three products should be daily, or certainly for me are daily now, um, particularly the P3OM enzymes and the uh, masszymes for healing the gut and allowing your body to ultimately improve your heart rate variability and thrive. And you guys can head over to bioptimizers.com slash muscle 10 and get hooked up with 10% off the best enzymes on the planet. Check out the video they have on that page. You guys are gonna love it. It's crazy. It's three minutes long. 
and shows exactly how well these enzymes work. And P3O um, gets my stamp of approval as one of the great probiotics that I'm using for healing my gut ongoing. And I do it for about 30 days, uh, pretty aggressively with the dose. And then I back off for about 30 days and I repeat cyclically like that. Enjoy the show, Dr. Jay Wiles. And don't forget to check out buyoptimizers.com slash muscle 10 to get hooked up. Hey, welcome to Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm Ben Bukulski sitting here with Dr. Jay Wiles, clinical psychologist from Greenville, South Carolina. And we're going to talk about heart rate variability and ultimately psychophysiology, the integration of your physiology and your mind, which has you know, become my one of my greatest areas of interest after you know, spending 20 years exclusively focusing on the body. I started to become... Uh, exquisitely aware, we'll say, of the necessity of the integration of the mind and, and the inextricable nature of the mind-body um, relationship, right? These things can't be separated, yet so many people just focus on one and not the other. And uh, bridging the gap for people is a big um, goal of mine. It's like, hey, what does it look like to start to understand how your physiology influences your psychology and ultimately how your psychology influences your physiology? And then looking at this uh, this dance that exists between these things. So I'm super grateful for you being here with me, Dr. J. Yeah, man. So glad to be on here. Thanks for having me. Um, you've been doing some wonderful things lately with our friend Ben Greenfield. So anyone wants to check out Dr. J, you can see uh, some of the podcasts he does with Ben Greenfield in the Q&A. And an incredible deep dive into HRV that you did that really got my attention. Uh, it's probably the best deep dive I've heard. And I've had a lot of great experts on. I mean, Joel Jameson's a good friend. Mike Nelson's a good friend. And they're amazing experts. I'm sure you know both those mm -hmm. guys. Yeah. Um, but that that one kind of monologue you did, which was over 90 minutes. Yeah, it was a while. Just, just kind of you riffing on what hurry variability is and all the potential uh, opportunities that exist, potential setbacks that exist, um, and you know where people are looking and maybe where they should be looking. So right. um, as I said, just before we started recording, I'd love to dive into maybe just giving the audience a, another kind of summary on what HRV is and, and what some of the limitations are that we're experiencing with the tech that we have now. Because on the podcast, you know, Ben's uh, show, you really went into the different measuring mechanisms and the different, you know, one's a, a chest strap versus a versus an aura versus a, a wristwatch and how they use different um, measurements mm -hmm. and how those can be varying as far as their accuracy and, and utility and comparing them across platforms isn't a good idea. So I'd like to have you just kind of start talking about what HRV is and why people should be caring about it. Yeah, you know, one of the biggest questions that I get uh, in regards to heart rate variability is like, what is this thing? Because you see it like on all of these new types of wearables, right? Whether it's, you know, I, I have like everything on. So I've got a whoop strap on, I've got an aura ring. Like I, I'm measuring like in so many different ways, but this kind of curious biometric that comes up is heart rate variability. And people kind of see it, but they only see it for kind of like one number typically, mm -hmm. which it's very multifaceted. And in, in that podcast that I did with Ben, I, I kind of go, into kind of all the different domains and, and we can unpack some of those things if it makes sense for us to do so today yeah. but heart rate variability at its most simplest um, kind of definition or in the most simplistic terms is that it is the variability in between heartbeats so why is that important that's the question that kind of comes into there why would it be even be something that we need to look at well, we know that the heart from a cardiovascular standpoint, but also from a psychophysiological standpoint, the heart doesn't operate like a metronome. It shouldn't be a paced beat. The reason why the heart shouldn't be a paced beat is because it needs to be resilient in operating and controlling and kind of attending to all the things that are going on both internally and externally. We have trillions, that is trillions of processes that are occurring in the body at any given second. And when the heart can't keep 
up or it, de it determines that there's stress within the body or in the environment, then basically what does it say? It says, holy crap, I need to regulate myself because there is chaos within the body. There's stress within the body or within the mind. And so it starts to do so. It starts to really uh, become more like a metronome and the time in between heartbeats tends to stabilize. And you would think, oh, that sounds kind of like a good thing, a stable heart. Then isn't that a good thing? The answer is absolutely not. If I see somebody with a, a heart rate variability of zero, I say, oh, my goodness, this person could be about to go into cardiac arrest. Let's get them to the emergency department. So that's why we, we have interest in this variable is we want to see how resilient is the cardiovascular system, but also how resilient is our nervous system? Because we know that heart rate variability is the single greatest at the moment, non-invasive way of measuring our stress response or our autonomic nervous system response. And when we say autonomic nervous system, uh, your audience is probably pretty familiar with this, but we're talking about kind of autonomic functions or our fight or flight response, which is our sympathetic response or our rest and digest or relaxation response, which is our parasympathetic response. And what we know with heart rate variability and looking at this biometric is it can give us pretty good insight into what system is being either dialed up or turned down in that moment. So basically, are we engaging in a stress response, physiological or psychological, or a bit of both, or are we turning on more of that relaxation response? And again, these two do not operate um, uh, in a binary motion. Um, so one is not turned off and then one is turned on. Actually, they kind of work a little bit like a seesaw um, and, and they can balance each other out or they can be uh, kind of weight in one end and kind of uh, a, a depression in the other end. And so heart rate variability, again, will give us a good insight into, again, where is kind of the seesaw at this time? Is it well balanced where we're able to operate in and out of that stress response and relaxation response? Or is it tilted towards one direction or another? And one thing that I always try to clarify too, is that we don't want to identify one side being better than the other. Because again, when people are engaged in a high stress response, that can be very beneficial and adaptive and from an evolutionary perspective can save our lives. Um, and if somebody's operating in solely just a parasympathetic, um, uh, Kind of, if their sympathetic nervous system solely turned on, then the problem ends up happening that we can end up not getting anything done. We don't really have a ton of motivation because the body's just at nothing but rest. So we need to be able to modulate in and out of each nervous system. So that was a little bit more long-winded than probably yeah. what you were, you were looking for. Yeah, I'm honestly fun. looking for the deep dive. Like I said, we've yeah. had some experts on in the past who you know, started to give people um, uh, you know, the big toe into the water as far as understanding what HRV is. But I would love to do the deep dive today and start to understand at, at its its full capacity, as least as best as we know right now, as far as data can, can tell us, like what are the potential implications here, and how much should we be paying attention to this metric? And you know, ultimately, should this be something that an average human should be using, or is this just something that's reserved for high-level pro athletes? Why don't we start there? Yeah, I think that is a great question. Um, and it's one of the ones that I probably get from a consulting standpoint more than any. Like, is this even something that I should be using? Like, is this a metric that's a little bit too too advanced for me? And I will say kind of off the, off the get-go, 
Heart rate variability as a biometric can be very nuanced. It can be very complex to understand. However, it can also be very easy to understand. And I tell people it's always worth going in the deep dive. I mean, I say that as a researcher, as a scientist, because I love the deep dive, but it's not a necessity. I mean, if we can understand some of the basics and really when I say basics, what are the basic biometrics? So what are we looking at when we see these numbers presented to us? And then how are we measuring it? Are we measuring it correctly? correctly or incorrectly, uh, because there are a lot of myths regarding kind of how to measure it and how to accurately and appropriately measure it time-wise, um, kind of the device that you're using and so forth. So that suffice to say that this is something that is made for everybody, whether you're a top-level elite performance athlete, you're an executive, or you're just a weekend warrior or just an average, you know, everyday Joe, this is something that you can use and benefit from because it can help you to better understand kind of your stress response, but then also too, for the athlete, better understand when might I be overreaching? When might I be overtraining? training. Uh, when could this potentially be a window or insight and to me becoming uh, more prone to physical injury? All of those things are, are, are reasons why we can utilize HRV and should utilize HRV. Yeah, I think it's important for the listener to acknowledge that it seems to be characteristically uh, evident right now that most people are chronically sympathetic. We're chronically overstressed as, as a culture, as a as a human species, right? Or at least in North America and, and certainly probably Europe and most places in the world right now having to deal with this coronavirus uh, restriction being placed on us. So acknowledging, okay, that this is a physiological reality and our body is interpreting stress in the environment and responding to it exactly the way it should, exactly the way we want it to. This isn't our enemy, right? The stress isn't our enemy. What we're trying to do is acknowledge uh, we would like to learn how to adapt to this so that when the stress is removed or, or even if the stress isn't removed, maybe we can start to intervene and change our physiological response to this stress. So for the listener, stress is a reality of life. We're not going to get rid of it. That's not our goal, right? Our goal is to be stronger, not to remove the stress. And that's ultimately where HRV comes in, is giving you a metric of the strength and, and resilience and ultimately anti-fragility of your nervous system. So mm -hmm. assuming these stress are, uh, stresses aren't going away, Dr. J, um, let's start walking down the path of what people should be looking at as far as the HRV to know how well their body is adapting to stress. So uh, you know, walking down the path of understanding the numbers because yeah. the numbers can be uh, incredibly simple, as you said, and can also mm -hmm. be very confusing, especially if you're looking across different platforms. Yeah, the 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 crazy thing about this, and not that crazy though, is that you're right. Stress isn't going away. Um, stress is something that is an inevitable part of life, and it is something that we need to learn how to better adapt to to become more resilient. Because a lot of the times, like you said, our nervous system is so out of whack. The sympathetic side of the nervous system is just amped on, all to the repression of the parasympathetic nervous system, and we're on this constant hyperdrive. And what does that lead to? It leads to a constant secretion of, of, of hormones, of glucocorticoids, of all these things that are amping us up um, and we have no time to kind of turn it down or we feel like we have no control of that, which we actually do. And so I love that HRV takes us from 
a world of subjectivity, me saying that I subjectively feel stressed or I don't feel stressed, and then putting objective data or an objective biometric to it so that we can say, okay, well, I subjectively feel one way, but let me check in objectively. Uh, you know, I might feel like my blood pressure's up, but then I can go get my cuff behind me and I can check it to see where it's at. And we can do something very similar with stress. Um, it's not always a one-to-one. -one. There's a lot of variability that comes with variability or heart rate variability, uh, but it's a pretty good metric and we have a lot of robust science behind it. So the question was like, what do we look for? Like what are, where do we even start with this biometric? Well, the first thing that we have to look at is we have to know what are we measuring and how are we measuring it? Uh, when you look at the, the devices, there are so many that have um, different types of ways of measuring HRV and, when, and that I will, I'll say the way of measuring, but then also to the biometric in and of itself. So let's talk about the way of measuring. And I mentioned this in Ben's podcast, but this is something that absolutely bears repeating. We need to know, are we measuring via what's called photoplasmography or PPG, which is infrared light sensoring or red light sensoring, or are we utilizing electrocardiogram or EKG or ECG? Now there are two big distinct different between these two. One is looking at what's called blood volume pulse. Blood volume pulse is just shining a red light or infrared light through the skin and watching how much light or volume is passing. And we can detect and deduce heartbeat from that and then look again at the interbeat intervals in between heartbeats to determine heart rate variability. The other is EKG, which is actually looking at the electrical impulse or the QRST wave form of the echocardiogram and then detecting the interbeat interval time between those two. A lot of times people ask me, what's more accurate? From a clinical grade perspective, EKG or ECG is the most accurate way of doing it. However, it's a lot more invasive. It means you have to put on electrodes. It means you have to have the right equipment, which typically is more expensive. So the alternative, which may not necessarily be as accurate, but here and here's the caveat, it still is fairly accurate. We have good studies to demonstrate this would be something like an aura ring. I'm just trying to put in the camera or a ring or a whoop strap or uh, these other types of uh, yeah, yeah, PPG monitoring systems can be fairly accurate determining uh, heart rate variability. The one problem you have with PPG is that it is very prone to what's called artifacts. An artifact is just catching either ectopic beats or beats that are outside of the chambers of the heart, uh, detecting movement, and then filtering that in. So you need to make sure that the device you're using has a pretty good filtering system, uh, which most do for, for uh, removing artifacts, but most EKG systems are less prone to artifacts and are much better at removing it. So those are the ones that I use. So once you know kind of what you're using, uh, then we can look at the data metrics, which are typically the same because they're just utilizing algorithms from the data that they've collected to then transform that data into something that is usable or practical. Here's the biggest example that I give people of the differences between HRV scores. Uh, I think they may have recently updated this, but for the longest time, if anybody had an Apple Watch, Apple Watch would calculate heart rate variability and would provide you with a score. And that was called SDNN or the standard deviation of normal beat intervals. Now, when you looked at that, you might see a score like 100, 120 or so. And then somebody might have put on their aura ring and then uh, ran, ran their scores or a whoop strap and seen that they have a 40 or a 50. And they were like, I tested at the exact same time. Why am I getting a 100 on my Apple Watch 
and then I'm getting a 50 or a 40 on my aura ring or my whoop band. And the reason being is because they're actually utilizing completely different formulas for that biometric. The aura ring and the whoop strap are using what's called the RMSSD value or the root mean squared of successive differences, which is just an algorithm of calculating out uh, breath rhythm and breath rate. Um, it's one of the one, it's the go-to standard for short-term measurements. Whereas the Apple Watch was using what we call a long-term measurement and the gold standard, which is SDNN. The problem though, is that Apple Watch was only calculating it over a very short period of time. And so therefore the data for that SDNN measurement was extremely inaccurate. So that's why they look completely different. So I typically will recommend people utilize a device that's using that RMSSD value. Um, and so for me, every morning, what I use, I actually have it sitting right here, it's my Polar H10 chest strap, and I use what's called the Elite HRV app. And what it does is it calculates both the time domain indices, which is like that RMSSD value, it's that uh, SDNN value, as well as what's called the frequency domain values. And I'd love to unpack that because the frequency domain values, in my opinion, it's kind of like getting the EEG, like for brainwave states, for your heart. I mean, it's the exact same thing for your heart. So what does it do? It gives us a little bit more of a nuanced view of what heart rate variability is doing as opposed to just getting that singular value. Because that singular value that you're getting from your Whoop band, that you're getting from your Aura Ring, that you're getting from Apple Watch, it gives us usable data, but not nearly the full spectrum of data that we get from looking at our frequency domains. Um, and so that a three, uh, three minute approximately measurement first thing in the morning? Yeah, so I do I do five minutes, and the reason why I do five minutes on my Elite HRV uh, 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 chest strap is because the uh, low frequency band um, needs about two minutes, uh, the high frequency band needs about three minutes, and then the very low frequency band needs about five minutes for an accurate calculation. And so when I have five minutes of data, I know that I'm going to get fairly accurate data in regards to the spectrums of my of my HRV values. So I I like to kind to play it safe from a research space standpoint five minutes is the minimum if you can go longer you're going to get not necessarily more accurate results uh but you might get just a little bit of extra data um but really five minutes will suffice and that's kind of laying on your back first thing in the morning um, yeah, you just, it, it doesn't matter if you're laying on your back or standing or sitting. I don't recommend standing huh, because you're going to get a lower HRV value than what your typical baseline is. Not saying we're trying to inflate or change the data on purpose, but you're going to get a much more accurate reading if you're in a still position. So if you're sitting or if you're lying down, what you want to be is consistent. Um, so if you are testing it every single day, which is my recommendation, especially for athletes, you should be testing this every single day, is that you should be doing an overnight testing and then a first thing in the morning, like a morning readiness score. And you should do it at the same time. You should do it in kind of the same state. So if you do it fasted, do it fasted every morning. Um, you know, Before you eat, before you have coffee is another thing um, because that can dysregulate heart rate variability and heart rate, obviously. Uh, and then and also to just do it in the same position, lying down or seated. Very cool. So um, I think there was some more stuff you wanted to kind of unpack there and I, and I interrupt you. So I'll let you keep oh, no, no worries. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to get into the frequency domain values. Yeah. And, and these are ones that are not presented on something like the Aura Ring or the Whoop Band. Uh, however, uh, a lot of more advanced applications or like the one I use, which is a free download, Elite HRV. I, I don't receive any money from kind of mentioning them. I just love uh, them and their CEO is great. And I worked with them a fair amount. Um, but I just put on like my Polar H10 chest strap, which is just like a running chest strap. Um, so it's just a heart rate uh, chest strap and EKG. And then I'll measure that for five minutes. 
And then I look at that that time domain indice. Um, so that time domain indice is always going to be in milliseconds. Um, so for me, I'm, my average typically in the mornings when I'm testing would be like anywhere from about a 115 to 130 is where I'm typically at. But don't base that on you. So if you hear that and say, well, when I measure, you know, I'm at like a 20, it's very variable. What you just want is consistency when you're testing. And then you want self-comparison as your main basis. Normative comparison is really important from a cardiovascular standpoint, but from a stress and psychophysiological perspective, it doesn't bear as much weight as self-comparison does. So I'll, I'll, I'll split apart and look at my uh, frequency domains. Perfect. When I say frequency domains, I'm talking mainly about um, the Hertz rate. And when I say Hertz rate, it's the very same thing that we're talking about in terms of when you run an EEG and you look at brain waves. So we know that brain waves are delta, gamma, alpha, beta, and theta. And the, the heart actually has the same type of output. We just call it different things. And we know from research-based standpoints that each domain um, has its own characteristics. So I'll look at three predominantly, the very low frequency domain, the low frequency domain, and then the high frequency domain. What we know is that the very low frequency domain is really receiving main contributions from the sympathetic nervous system. So what does that mean? That means if we see that part of our domain becoming heightened or repressed, then we have some good information on the sympathetic influences. So if I look at my previous day and let's say the power, because it's all based in power or absolute value, I see the power of my very low frequency domain was, let's say, a 500. And then the next day, I see that it's at a 1,000. Well, what I actually know is, is that my sympathetic nervous system in comparison to the previous day, and then obviously I can look at my baseline numbers, is significantly higher. And so what do I do? I, I kind of first say, well, that means that my sympathetic nervous system is trying to tell me something. It's amped up. Well, why? And that's the question we always have to ask. What might be kind of the contributor to this state? Well, if am I an athlete? Did I really work out hard? Did I do a Metcon yesterday? Did I, you know, run a marathon yesterday? If, if those are can kind of give us some answers. Um, if I'm kind of like someone who's using this metric more for uh, stress management or anxiety or depression, well, what's kind of going on? Did something occur yesterday or this morning or at the time of, uh, you know, of, of, of detection? What was it that might be contributing? These are all questions that we have to ask. Don't just kind of base the metric on, oh, I see my numbers have changed, but I like the answer or the question of why, because it gets more at the functional root of the problem and we can't make changes unless we get at the functional root of the problem. So after I check the very low frequency band, I look at the low frequency. The low frequency band is a really interesting one because it, uh, it does two things. Number one, it receives contributions both from the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So we can actually know what's going on um, uh, with more robust detail if we look at that domain as kind of like the decider. So when I say decider, I mean that if the very low frequency domain is elevated and I say, okay, you know what? Sympathetic activity is probably being engaged right now. And I see the low frequency elevated as well. And then the one I'm going to get to last, the high frequency domain is depressed or, or down. I know I'm in a stress response or my body is responding in a certain way, which is be, be more in that fight or flight response. Right. So we can kind of use it as, as like a dictator. The other thing is, is that low frequency band actually operates um, very much in tandem with our baroreflex. Our baroreflex is a physiological mechanism. It's, a, it's actually a negative feedback loop. It's a regulation of our blood pressure. And we know that it's regulated via one of the most famous cranial nerves, the 10th cranial nerve, which is our vagus nerve. 
And we know that when our vagus nerve is stimulated, uh, when we have what's called vagal tone, we see changes in blood pressure, we see changes in the baroreflex response, and then subsequently we see changes both in our domain indices of heart rate variability, as well as our heart rate in and of itself. And here in a minute, what I'd love to do is dispel a myth. A lot of people think that, oh, if I've raised my heart rate variability, if I've seen it go up, then therefore I must uh, have vagal tone. And that's not true. Um, there's actually some characteristics that we have to look for in order to say that we have truly stimulated the vagus nerve. So I'd love to get that that in a second after I've kind of talked about the frequency demo. Yeah, absolutely, man. Keep going. You're yeah. yeah. Uh, the, so I look at that low frequency band. The last one that I look at, which is arguably, I wouldn't say the most important, but for a parasympathetic response, it is going to be the most important um, to look at because it receives contributions from only the parasympathetic side. So when there's parasympathetic withdrawal, which means that we're in more of a sympathetic kind of stress-driven state, we'll see the high-frequency domain become extremely repressed. Now, opposite end, if we're in a really relaxed state or a very resilient state, we'll see that high-frequency band go way up, and we'll see the low-frequency band go way up as well. And then the very low-frequency band will become repressed. So the, you have to kind of look at these combinations. And when I'm doing coaching with people, I kind of train them to look at these different combinations markers. Because if you don't know what you're looking at, then you kind of don't know what to do with the data uh, because it's confusing. We're talking about frequency bands and kind of looking what's up, what's down, how do we compare it? And, um, those, those are things that can be challenging, but we really just want to look at the direction, especially compared to baseline. Is it going up or is it going down? And then we can kind of deduce from there kind of the state that we're experiencing. So I just take all that data and put it together. So I look at the time domain indices, that RMSSD value, and then I'll go and check the frequency domain values as well. Which way are they moving? And that will kind of dictate what do I do with that? Do I engage in something um, from an athletics perspective? Do I kind of dial down the intensity today or is my nervous system saying no hell no ramp it up like let's go let's take charge of the day today's a metcon day or like do i look at it from a stress management perspective like you know my my nervous system is saying i need to dial down today i don't need to kind of go just as hardcore as i might like i need to take some of my breaks i need to meditate i need to new calm i need to whatever you know the thing is that you use that helps you get out of a stress response breath regulation that's the biggest one that we can talk about whatever it may be you use that data as a great insight into kind of where you go with it um, so don't just kind of check your hrv and be like okay that's cool that i'm there but what do you do with that data make the data usable don't make it just kind of objective data that gets stashed away in your phone like i, I look every morning and i say well what do i do with this and then i can kind of make that determination what exactly is the, are the frequency frequency domains measuring? I don't know if you said that, but like, is it just, just measuring? Yeah, I'll let you. Uh, so I guess you kind of said it's maybe similar to like the brain waves, where it's beta mm -hmm. alpha. Yep. So, it, it so brain. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so brain waves are just looking at oscillation. So it's looking at the rate or Hertz rate. So that kind of pulsing uh, oscillation rate. Heart rate, um, low frequency is doing the exact same. So we know that between uh, 0.1 hertz all the way up to 0.5 hertz, uh, that's kind of that low frequency band. And so those are just wave oscillations. So that's the rate or the hertz rate. So kind of the production, how fast or how slow these waves are moving. And we can make determinations kind of based on our research and insight into you know psychophysiology on what those domains mean um, based on that rate. So yeah, it's just like an EEG for the heart. 
Right. So um, Elite HRV will give you these very low, low and high frequency domains. Yes. Yeah. It'll give you all of them. And again, it's a free download. If you want a really good chest strap, that is, I recommend the Polar H10. Um, I just, you know, throw a little bit of electrode gel on that or water on that, just like you were, if you're going to use it for running mm-hmm. five minutes and you'll get that data output. I would just say that if you first start using it, the numbers aren't going to mean as much because you don't have as much of a self or baseline comparison. So I would, I tell people generally about five to seven days. So about a week worth of data, uh, unless you are in like a chaotic stress response, if you're moving, if you're going through a divorce, if you're having kind of those things going on, if coronavirus, whatever it is, that's stressing you out, like that may um, kind of deviate um, the variability there from your normal baseline. So it may take a little bit more time, but for most people, seven days is all you need. Okay, I'd love to get into some of the strategies to change it, but before that, is there any value in 24-hour HRV in your eyes? Like if wearing a strap 24 hours a day, um, mm-hmm. deeper levels of value? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, here's, here's the thing. When we look at the gold standard measurement of heart rate variability, it is that SDNN measurement, that standard deviation of normal beat intervals. The reason it is the gold standard is because when we look at it from a strictly cardiovascular standpoint, so from a heart standpoint or heart health standpoint, we can make determinations based on 24-hour readings, but we need 24 hours because Heart rate variability in the cardiovascular system is modulated and changes very much uh, or varies a lot during a 24-hour cycle. So we're talking about a lot of different variables, um, including sleep. So we need that amount of time. So what can we base 24 hours on? Well, number one, we would need a 24-hour consistent measurement. And when I say consistent, I mean measuring every single second for 24 hours. That typically for people is inaccessible because that would mean you need a Holter monitor or you wear... you know, your elite HRV, you know, you wear the uh, Polar H10 chest strap for 24 hours, which can be a little bit cumbersome. I mean, it's kind of hard to, you know, you know, manage that all day. So you would need like, an, you know, an EKG that sticks on via electrodes and you test for 24 hours. I recommend that and a, and a cardiologist would recommend that for somebody who has heart health problems, um, maybe like once a year to check out 24 to 48 hours, or if somebody has already had a myocardial infarction or a heart attack because this is the greatest predictor of future heart attacks is heart rate variability and the suppression of heart rate variability from a 24-hour perspective. Other than that, I don't see as much value. Have you ever played with the first beat, the first beat technology? I have not, no. So British, actually, I think it's a Finnish company that actually has their headquarters in in UK now. And Mm -hmm. um, it's it's, uh, ECG or EKG chest strap. Um, And it's I think it's the best data I've ever seen when it comes to... Um, HRV as far as accuracy and depth. Um, and I believe Garmin just bought their tech actually. So oh, nice. Yeah. So maybe integrating more into the new Garmin technologies. Yeah. I need to check that one out. That one sounds great. Yeah. I can connect with the company. Uh, yeah. They've become well acquainted. Yes. Um, so you, you did mention, I mean, actually, before we move on to interventions, I love that sure. if there's anything else you think that would be relevant for the listener to start to understand, I'm sure there's a lot, um, but some basic stuff. If there's anything else that we've missed before we move into, okay, now we find, you know, our high, low, and, and, and very low frequency domains. Um, the ratios are skewed in some way that isn't advantageous to what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so interventions, but what is there anything that we've left out that you think is worth covering? 
Yeah, you know, I think that there there's so much research in this area that it's going to be hard to kind of expand it in just kind of a short period of time. But one of the things that a lot of people ask me about, um, because they're kind of like, you know, I want to work on two things. I want to work on stress resiliency and control, but then I also want to work on cardiovascular functioning. And I always tell them these two are very much interconnected. They're as interconnected as they get. And so I have so many people that I consult with that are like, listen, I've got high blood pressure. High blood pressure runs rampant among people. And I would tell people like, if you don't know what your blood pressure is, check it. Because a lot of people don't even know they have high blood pressure until they check it. And they're like, well, it's not so great. Or they'll go into a doctor's office that they haven't been into for years. And they're like, I didn't realize that because, you know, it's kind of a silent killer. You don't recognize that. And so a lot of people will ask me, okay, so what do I do for cardiovascular health um, and uh, and like stress management health that are kind of like one and the same? So how do I kill two birds with one stone? And and this kind of is, I guess, a good segue way into where we're going with this is that I say that the mechanism of action of what we do from an interventional standpoint is actually one in the same. It's not, it's not um, that everybody should be doing kind of the exact same thing, but I'm saying that we can tailor the approach to where we can affect both our psychophysiological stress response while also improving cardiovascular health kind of all in one. So I just kind of tell people like, cause everybody's like, a lot of people ask, well, am I going to have to do like a thousand different things? Because I'm trying to take care of heart health. I'm trying to take care of stress. I'm trying to optimize sports performance. And I'm like, no, let's, I, I'm all about optimization of time as well as health. And so I, I think the two go hand in hand. So I just like to mention that kind of as we go into a, a segue to say like, there's not like you have to do a thousand different things. I don't want people devoting you know, 10 hours in their day to try to manage these things. Uh, once you kind of develop the basic skills, you become conditioned um, to these skills and the body becomes conditioned. I know it's a great psychologist term, but it's true. Then you don't have to worry about regulating as, uh, them as much. We can actually teach our bodies how to self-regulate because right. that's the key, self-awareness and then self-regulation. Yeah, there was this interesting paradigm that was kind of overtaking the fitness industry probably for the last three years or so. And it's certainly changed now, but people trying to get away from doing aerobic work, saying aerobic work is bad and mm -hmm. you, don't the road, you don't need cardio and we're just like well that's not the best idea so uh, it's very i'm very grateful that that's kind of gone away and people realize the, the utility of um you know in, intervening with some level of aerobic fitness on a regular mm -hmm. consistent basis and using your hrv as kind of the guide to say hey is this something i need a lot of or just a little bit of to kind of maintain my recoverability between workouts between sets um so one thing that I've advocated as the simplest base level thing is, is this concept of breathe, walk, meditate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, I've given people ways to do them all at the same time, right? You can do a, a walking meditation while doing conscious breathing and you're doing them all at the same time. And that's a really simple way for most people just to start intervening with some parasympathetic inputs, becoming mindful in the way you walk and mindful in the way you breathe and, and you know, panoramic vision of the horizon ideally it, it seems like it's the perfect storm and it's built in right it's not like we have to do anything uh, miraculously um innovative it's just yeah. like go out there and look at the horizon take the headphones out of your leave yeah. the cell phone at home and breathe yeah okay that seems and, and the difference maker yeah. the difference it makes it's not as sexy tremendous. no but yeah. it's tremendous like yeah you know, perceived well-being goes up and i'd love to eventually get there as well yeah. but um, I know I'm sure you have many um, logical and effective interventions left to share. Yeah. Well, I love that you mentioned that there are a lot of these things for helping to better regulate our nervous system or self-regulate are their basics. Um, their basics. Everybody wants to come to myself, to Ben Greenfield. Like we get questions all the time. I can't tell you how many questions I get filtered that are about biohacks or right. kind of like new well, technologies. 
Exactly. And a lot of people, they, they, they stay away from the basics because like I was mentioning, the basics aren't sexy to them. Like it's, it's not something that gives them a lot of inherent value because it's not sexy and, uh, and, and kind of training kind of that behavior of basics before biohacks is what my wife and I tell each other, like every day basics before biohacks. Uh, it's so incredibly valuable and important because, uh, if we push away the basics and we just jump to biohacking or trying to kind of hack the nervous system, then the ba- it's just a band-aid and the band-aid's going to fall off inevitably and we're going to expose our wounds. So let's get at the foundation of this. Just get back to what we were ev- evolutionarily created f- to do, which is engage in the basic things of regulating or self-regulating the nervous system. Yeah. So do you have some daily practices that you like to apply that are going to allow you to get back to the basics? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say, I will give my, let me give you my daily basics because there, I mean, I'm, and cause I'm not downing kind of like the biohacks or integrating new innovative technology. Sure. I love doing those things, but always as a way to augment the basics, always as a secondary, as opposed to a primary. So I'll talk about the basic things that I do. Um, and, and I'll try not to, uh, drone on too much, uh, but there's a lot that I do for this. Um, and the reason being is because, uh, it's my expertise area. So I'm kind of expected to kind of like, I'm not expected. I expect myself to be able to really uh, demonstrate to myself that I have good, good control over this. Um, and some days I do, some days I don't. And I have to have leniency over that. Some days my HRV is so out of whack because I have deadlines or I'm, you know, uh, I'm working from seven in the morning until, you know, 10 at night or whatever it may be. I have a really long day. Like these things happen in life. And so sometimes me trying to regulate my nervous system um, uh, can be a little bit more forced and it can make my heart rate variability go down instead of up, which is like the opposite of what I want to do. So I just, that's interesting. Yeah. So I just have to, I have to listen to my body both subjectively and objectively and not just base everything on subjectivity and not just base everything on objectivity, because that's been my biggest problem is that I try to use my objective science brain and the data that I have to dictate everything I do instead of listening to my gut, instead of listening to my subjective feelings. And that's problematic. So I have to watch out for that. So my daily practices. Um, so one of the very first things that I do in the morning, um, and this is every single morning. Um, I, I've only missed it in the last maybe five years, like just a handful of times. Every single morning I wake up, I'm an early morning riser. So it's generally about 5 a.m. for me. Every single morning before I go do my red light therapy, again, one of my biohacks, um, is I actually will go and measure my heart rate variability. So I kind of, I get out of bed. I haven't done anything. I haven't showered or anything. I get out of bed. I go and sit in a, in a chair. It's actually like a really cushy chair in my home office. Um, I'll put on my elite HRV, um, or my, my polar H interest chest strap, I'll turn on my elite HRV and I'll sit for five minutes. When I'm measuring my heart rate variability, and this is important, I try not to, and this is hard, this is difficult because when I'm just sitting, my body is so conditioned to kind of regulate itself, which is not a bad thing. I've done, I've kind of spent a lot of time trying to condition it, but I try not to manipulate anything that could skew my results uh, for my heart rate variability testing. What's something that could skew my results? If I start to regulate my breathing down to say below six breaths per minute, I'm going to have an inflated HRV. All my domains are going to be inflated from the frequency domains and my time domain indices is going to be inflated as well. So I try to just breathe naturally. So anywhere from about 12 to 14 breaths, I'm try to stay in that range, but I'm really trying not to act on too much volition. I want it just to be passive, allow it to happen. Sometimes I just kind of get caught up into meditating or something and I'm like, oh, I can tell these are inflated and right. I might read is, is that uh, normal 12 to 14 breaths? Because I hear so many different theories 
on you should be at six, you should be at 10, you, should, you know, most people are 15. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is there yeah. anyone that's actually quantified in, and not just in 2020, but what it may have been, you know, previous to the technology-based lives we live? Right. So here's the, here's the thing that we know. One female breathes at a rate of about 14 to 16 breaths per minute. That's not fast. That's not slow. That's just where we are. Uh, when I've talked to people like uh, Patrick McCune, he's, he's, a, he's a good friend of mine um, who wrote The Oxygen Advantage. He's huge yeah. in Buteco. Um, he said that he generally likes to see people around that 12 to 14 as opposed to 14 to 16. When, when you see a lot of people are like, well, I've been taught like you should breathe at six breaths per minute. That helps to regulate the nervous system. It's true. But in order to breathe, that six breaths per minute that comes out of volition that's not that's active that's not passive us doing that so like if i were to see somebody let's say with an aura ring wake up and their breath rate is at six breaths per minute that is apnea that is scary that is something they need to do something with that that's not normal from a physiological perspective because what it's actually doing is that it incites a stomach which is kind of these huge peaks and valleys of the heart rate uh, going from kind of trough um, all the way at the bottom. Let's say their heart rate's at 50 all the way up to like, let's say they get it up to 75 or 80 and then back down to 50. That um, amplitude of heart rate variability or what we call respiratory sinus arrhythmia is only normal when we're modulating our breathing, when we're actively modulating it. So so what we do not like to see, uh, which we don't see, we don't see people waking up with an aura ring of, you know, six or eight breaths per minute. If we do, then a lot of times I'm like, you need to go get a sleep study done because this is not normal. What's normal uh, is being in, in that anywhere from about 12 up to 16. It doesn't mean if you're a little bit lower or a little bit higher that it's problematic, but over 16 is pretty high. Uh, under 12, that's fairly low. I've done a lot of practice on this um, and I do a ton of breathwork practice every single day. I generally spend anywhere from about 15 to 30 minutes every single day doing breathwork practice, especially utilizing like Buteco breathing. And uh, my overnight breathing rate um, started before Buteco is around like maybe 14 or so and is down to about 12 and a half. That's my baseline um, breath rate overnight. So yeah, there's going to be people that are going to argue one way or another um, what's kind of dysfunctional breathing and what's not. Um, but what I say is, is that you don't want to be breathing at six breaths per minute all day long. You're not going to be able to do that. So don't try to sustain that. But if you need to rescue yourself, if you need to engage in resiliency and control over the nervous system, that's when you want to engage in that really low cadence breathing, change up your biomechanics of breathing, and then change up the biochemistry of breathing as well. And kind of all of those things can help to inflate heart rate variability, which is a good thing um, because the more we do it, the more we condition heart rate variability to go up through these different types of training mechanisms that we can talk about, then the nervous system becomes more conditioned to do that during a stress response so that you don't have to act out of your own will or volition when a stress uh, event happens, both internally or externally, your body just naturally engages in that mechanism in an order to self-regulate, to return to homeostasis, to get you out of it in that moment. So again, I know that's a long-winded way of answering the question, but hopefully that did. Yeah, it's, a great, it's a great answer because I've, I've heard um, varying perspectives and from people who you would know as authorities in the, ex- in the industry. Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, I'm trying to put together a list of answers from all the people who are yeah. seem to be the experts. Sure. Yeah. And one thing to, to note too, 
The reason why we drop our breathing rate so low is to maximize that respiratory sinus arrhythmia amplitude. So that's kind of peak to trough differences over the respiratory cycle. So within each breath, we want to see our heart rate decrease and increase and then decrease again. That actually increases the amplitude of heart rate variability as well and can lead to vagal tone. Doesn't mean it's going to, but can lead to vagal tone. And one of the predominant researchers, his name's Dr. Paul Lair, he found that when uh, for individuals um, who are breathing at a really low rate, and that rate goes typically as low as four and a half breaths per minute, all the way up to six and a half breaths per minute, each person kind of has in between kind of that spectrum of four and a half to six and a half breaths per minute, what is called a resonance breathing pattern, a resonance frequency pattern. And what that means is that we can optimize heart rate variability by finding that accurately. We're all going to raise heart rate variability if we lower our breathing to that rate, but we can optimize it by finding the optimal optimal rate for us or the resonant frequency rate. And that's why a lot of people want to find kind of, or get down low now as far as breathing rate goes in between four and a half and six. So and I'd half. love to, I'd love to have you speak to what that resonant rate is mm -hmm. or, or sorry, um, what it means, to, mm -hmm. what the implications are. Cause one question I did want to bring up with you is the idea of coherence, like heart brain coherence. Yes. And cause with your background in psychophysiology, I'm sure you're, you're very um, well researched and well studied mm -hmm. in that area. So I'd love to have you just kind of go down that path of understanding resonance and then how that ties into coherence and what coherence even means. Yeah, yeah, great question. There's a lot of inter interchangeable terms here. Um, so whether it's resonant frequency, uh, resonance breathing rate, coherence, a lot of inter interchangeable terms with slight nuances, but a lot of them are getting at the same thing. The term coherence was coined by a company called HeartMath, and they make a product called the Inner Balance and the M-Wave 2, and they kind of took hold of this, uh, this term called coherence, which is the closest thing that we have uh, to resonant frequency, but but is maybe potentially more indicative of vagal tone, so actually stimulating the vagus nerve. Because what we know is that we can engage in a resonant frequency breathing pattern, and I'll talk more about what that is here in just a second, but not necessarily engage in vagal tone. We might can just help to cool the nervous system off, but not optimize it uh, by stimulating the vagus nerve. So what coherence is, is it's, called, it's kind of a combination of things. Number one, it's, mask, it's maximizing that RSA, that respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So that's the amplitude of heart rate. It's also breathing at that low frequency domain. So it's getting a peak spike in that domain while also raising high frequency band. And then it's also breathing in coherence with your heart rate. So heart rate and breathing are matching one to one. So it just kind of looks like a, a, a uh, peaks and valleys of the hills, the inhalation, and the exhalation are matching up perfectly with that uh, breath rate. Sorry, with that heart rate. Now, there is some interesting new research that was done by Dr. Paul Lair, who I was mentioning earlier, who kind of coined that term resonant frequency, that found that for most individuals, not most individuals, but for many individuals, um, breathing at resonant frequency um, doesn't necessarily mean that coherence is happening, that you're having kind of that one-to-one -one, uh, uh, breath rate and heart rate matching in pairs with one another, um, that for some individuals, that's not the case. They're actually able to maximize heart rate vari variability by breathing at resonant frequency but there's not a lot of what you know, heart math calls coherence happening. So that's kind of interesting. That kind of shook the world of psychophysiology a little bit. I know it's kind of our, our, uh, our I, was, I was joking with somebody. I was like, yeah, that's kind of the news that broke all of us. And we're like, well, what do 
we do with this? And right. what do we do with that? It just means that we continue to tailor what we're doing um, to the individual. And we uh, kind of watch to see, well, what do their numbers say? And then what do they feel subjectively? Resonant frequency kind of at its core um, is really just what breath rate maximizes heart rate variability. And when I say maximizes heart rate variability, what helps to best increase the time domain indices? What helps to best suppress the very low frequency domain? What helps to cause that what we call the meditator's peak or that really big spike in low frequency domain right. and what helps to increase high frequency domain? So that's, so that's mainly the difference. Reversing into something here, you're saying breathing and heart rate at the same frequency. If I'm breathing six times a minute, but my heart rate is 50 times a minute, where's the where, where's the those things happening at the same time? That's mm -hmm. that's the gap that I, I don't think was clarified. Yeah. So it, let's say, so let's say we're breathing at six breaths per minute. Um, and, and, and so we're breathing at six breaths per minute. Uh, what we want to look at then is say, okay, well, what is the RMSSD time domain value doing? So let's say someone breathes at six breaths per minute. And during that cycle, um, there's not as much of a phase coherence. And what I mean by that is that as they're breathing in and as they're breathing out, their heart rate's not really following one-to-one. -one. It's a little bit either left shifted or right shifted. How, how is it one, how, how one, explain one to one. That's what I'm missing is the numbers just don't make sense in my brain. Is like if I'm breathing okay. at 50 beats per minute and I'm breathing at, or sorry, I'm, I'm my heart's going at 50 beats per minute, but my my breath is six beats per minute. How do they line up? Okay, okay. Let me see if I can best explain this. Um, because if I had a diagram, I could show you, and it would sure. all make sense. But let me see if I can verbally explain it. So, if someone is breathing at six breaths per minute, what we would expect to see if somebody is breathing at their resonance is for their heart rate just to follow a pattern that goes in line yeah. with the breathing rate. So, sure. as you begin to inhale, you're uh, or actually at the exhale or pause. Most people um, who are functionally breathing will naturally pause at the exhale when they start to inhale inhale, does their heart rate start to follow in an upward direction? Um, so the beats could be different for everybody, right? You could start at 50 for one person. It could start at 60 for one person. If somebody has, you know, a really fast heartbeat, it might start at 70. And then we see, okay, well, when they get to the peak of that breath, so they're at the top of their inhalation and they're about to exhale, when they start the exhalation, does the heart rate follow with it and come down as well? Uh, and so we see how much in phase are they? Because it might be that someone starts their inhalation but it's a few maybe seconds after they start their inhalation that their heart rate starts to go up. So that might mean they're breathing too fast or they're breathing too slow. They're not maximizing that coherence. So this is why it becomes really important. And, and a lot of times, you can use devices like HeartMath or the Inner Balance to detect things like that. I use one called the Leaf Therapeutics device. It's a wearable EKG that will help to detect it for you, and you can watch it on screen. Uh, that's my favorite one, wearable EKG. It's called Leaf Therapeutics, L-I-E-F, getleaf.com, I think is their website. They're, they're phenomenal. Um, and, and it's a biofeedback training mechanism as well, so it gives you like that haptic feedback for training HRV throughout the day. But what, it, but, but what we want to do is we want to see that one-to-one -one face coherence. So as we breathe then is the heart rate going up as we breathe out is the heart rate going down how much are they matching with one another or how much are they out of out of whack and that will again help to determine are we breathing too fast or outside of our resonant frequency too fast are we breathing too slow or outside of our resonant frequency in too slow of a direction does that make sense or can i clarify it more yep no, that makes 100 sense thank okay. you that was, uh, yeah. that was very helpful yeah yeah indeed indeed so that's then indicative of um, someone's uh, autonomic tone right so if the sympathetic mm -hmm. nervous system is too aroused, their their body's just going to take longer to respond, whether it be on the inhale or the exhale. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot that can tell us as well 
a lot of information that it can provide while we're doing it, but mainly we use these resonant frequency breathing patterns as an intervention. So as a rescue or means of helping to engage resiliency and control of the nervous system. So I'll train people all the time. And number one, finding and becoming more aware of what that optimal pattern is, that resonant frequency pattern. And then when they become better at self, becoming more self-aware of when HRV is dropping, they're engaging in a stress response, then they can engage in that breathing pattern. And it's not just the breathing pattern that matters. The cadence is important, but also how are we optimizing breath mechanics? And I know you've talked with like James Nestor about this and Patrick McCune's huge on this. So optimizing appropriate mechanics, um, because that can actually lead more to vagal tone than just about anything is using good mechanics. One of my questions, which one's going to influence, uh, and this may be subjective, but which one's going to influence vagal tone more? First of all, I'd like for you to define vagal tone, because we've said yeah. that term a few times, but we haven't actually said, you said, well, sometimes you do it and you get a vagal tone increase and sometimes right. you don't. So let's talk about that. And the second subsequent question would have been, um, gosh, I don't know what the follow-up, oh, uh, which one's going to influence breathing tone more? Is it going to be mechanical uh, interventions or biomechanical, bio, biochemical interventions, right? So yes. like, um, you know, CO2 or mm -hmm. you know, cadence stuff. Yes. And it, I guess that's probably a, a hard thing to answer, but I'd love to have you explore it. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did a um, seminar to Patrick McCune's crew, a lot of his coaches on the effects of the changes in biomechanics, biochemistry and cadence on heart rate variability. So I'd love to unpack that. Uh, and I'm going to talk about vagal tone within that. So I'll, let me go ahead and unpack sure. what, vagal, what vagal tone is. Okay, so a lot of people kind of have this misconception that when you raise HRV, that you're engaging in vagal tone, which means a, vagal tone just simply means a stimulation of the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is being communicated. So what we know is that the vagus nerve is our 10th cranial nerve, which means that it runs to our brain, up through the medulla, through the pons of our brain, down our spinal cord, um, and mostly innervates out of the, what we call the cervical part of our spinal cord, uh, as well as the paraspinal um, areas. And then it will enter many of our direct organs. And when I mean innervate, I'm just talking about connects, um, has a direct connection to many vital organs, almost every organ in the body. But what we actually know about the vagus nerve is that it's interconnected with two primary organs um, as the most interconnections or has the most uh, innervations. Those are, you probably guessed it, our heart and our lungs. And that is why uh, we can get a good glimpse into whether or not we're engaging in vagal tone by looking, well, what is our heart doing? What are our lungs doing? So here is how we can determine if we're actually engaging in a vagal tone by looking at HRV metrics. You can't just say, oh, I have a raise in my RMSSD value, therefore I am engaging in vagal tone. That is not true. Actually, the single greatest measurement from a biometric perspective now, when looking at whether or not vagal tone is occurring, is actually looking at a biometric called the natural logarithm of the high frequency domain. To my knowledge, there is no consumer device out there that does a natural log, which is basically just a transformation of the high frequency domain into something that is more um, accurate and usable from a uh, data comparison perspective. We use it more in research than anything. Uh, but what we actually know is we can actually look at changes in that value to determine uh, the, whether or not you're engaging in vagal tone. Um, so that's one way of doing it, but you have to run it through more advanced software that is going to take your uh, uh, 
your actual high frequency values, transform it into a natural logarithm. So there's a program called Cubios that if, if anybody isn't familiar with or is familiar with, it's an amazing researchers based and clinicians based uh, uh, software, uh, but it's very hard to understand and, and kind of read through and determine your values if you don't know what you're looking at. So I typically will just tell people to stay away from it. So because that's not accessible to most people, then what else can we look at? Can the modern day consumer look at their data and actually say with fair amount of confidence, maybe not 100% confidence, but with about 95% or so confidence that they are truly engaging in bagel tone? And the answer is yes. Here are the things that we look at. We look at and we see modulations in time domain indices so that RMSSD value has gone up. We see changes in the frequency domain. So we see low frequency band has gone up. We see high frequency band has gone up. We see the very low frequency band has been suppressed or has gone down. That's, 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 that's the next one. This is the kicker that we also need to look at. We need to look at heart rate. So has heart rate gone down? If heart rate has gone down and those other ones have been checked, then you can do one more measurement, but it's a little bit more invasive. I'll talk about it in a second. But if all those have been checked, then we can safely say that vagal tone has occurred. So again, just to recap, RMSSD has gone up. That's a time domain indice value. Up LF or low frequency band, up high frequency band, lowered very low frequency band, and lowered heart rate. So that was what, four data points? Yeah, four data points. Five, five, five data points. Uh, the other thing that you can check, which is actually a very good indicator of vagal tone, is you can look a little bit more closely at your baroreflex response. What does that actually look like? It looks like putting a blood pressure cuff on. So if you actually take your blood pressure pre and post, um, kind of maybe doing utilizing kind of an interventional mechanism for heart rate variability training, and you see that all of those metrics have changed and blood pressure has also gone down as well, then we can safely say, that the person has indeed had a vagal tone response. So that's 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 kind of how you find vagal tone. And I think there was another side of that question too. Well, before we move on, on from biomechanics, that, I, yeah, yeah, the biomechanics and the, the cadence, which is influencing vagal tone more or HRV more. But before we go into that, it seems like this would be a good time to interview with this question. And so, uh, both Patrick and Brian McKenzie talk about CO two tolerance and mm -hmm. improving your CO two tolerance. But neither of them has yet drawn a direct line correlation between uh, HRV and CO2 tolerance. Mm -hmm. Do you? Yes. Yeah, I have. I have because there's research on it. Um, there's not a lot. And so that's where I throw in a little bit of my, I'm going to provide you with what we have in the research, but I'm not going to say that this is definitive because we know in science, we don't want to just take a few studies, extrapolate the data and then cherry pick, if you will. I mean, sure. just kind of say it fits in all of these scenarios that they actually have done studies where they've looked at uh, the biochemistry regulation of CO2 and inducing more CO2 tolerance. They've done this with free divers, actually. Uh, yep. So they did one study with free divers. They did another study with um, just everyday individuals, healthy individuals. Um, so those are the two uh, kind of caveats I put in there. Free divers, we're talking about a whole new beast of individuals. However, mm -hmm. we can take a little bit of that data and then we can extrapolate a little bit. Um, the healthy individual studies is a little bit probably more important for, for us because we know that if anybody has any free diving type of training, like it's just a whole, these are a whole new beast of people that have trained their bodies to do things that are absolutely insane. But I love working with free divers on this. What they found and what the researchers have found is that when we become uh, more or less sensitive um, to the effects of CO2 and how we determine that is by actually looking at capnometry as well as looking at breath hold times um, as well as 
as looking at um, when we engage in more lighter abuteco style of breathing, like how much more tolerant do we become of those effects? What does heart rate variability do after more longer term training? And what we have found and kind of this is where it gets a little bit more difficult is that people have increased when they as they increase their tolerance to CO2 transiently or acutely. If somebody is doing a breath hold, um, which means that they're filling up kind of their, their lungs with CO2, uh, they're not, uh, they're, they're kind of having a, maybe a little bit more difficult time breathing because they have CO2 as, as a hold, we are seeing HRV plummet like a rock. So if someone did a breath hold exercise, HRV will plummet like a rock. The reason being is because it's a stress response. The body from an evolutionary perspective says, I'm drowning. I'm about to die. Let's turn on the fight or flight system. It's not a bad thing. Like again, when we exercise, we don't want to be in a parasympathetic state. I tell people this all the time. Like when you're if you're doing a Metcon workout and you need all of your energy resources, like you need that sympathetic nervous system to be on hyperdrive. That's okay. Now, after it, you want the parasympathetic side to come take over so that we can start the recovery process. Right. But but what we have found in, in, in this research, and I think the most interesting part is, is that we do see a one-to-one correlation with HRV raising um, on more longer term or after more longer term usage of uh, the CO2 tolerance skills. So whether it's, you know, using an apnea table, uh, using breath hold techniques, we see that transiently or acutely HRV will go down. But because it's a hormetic stressor, as CO2 tolerance goes up, heart rate variability inevitably follows. Where I have not seen as much robust research is determining whether or not it is a significant increase. Um, so is it something that is significant? I would probably argue that it's going to be. We're going to find that it is. Um, but I think that there's some other things that are going on um, that uh, are maybe equally as important as kind of the biochemistry. I think the biomechanics of breathing are equally, if not more important, and the cadence as well. I think it's the combination of those three things that I talk about with Patrick McCune, uh, the the modulation of biomechanics, biochemistry, and uh, cadence that truly matter the most. Yeah. I don't want to just take and cherry pick them individually. But yeah, there, there has been some interesting preliminary research to demonstrate CO2 tolerance equates to higher IHRB. Absolutely fantastic. So you did just allude there then that biomechanics may have a greater implication on or effect on improving acute or maybe chronic HRV. Is that still yeah. Good? yeah. 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 So then I'll ask this question because this is actually a question I've asked probably 10 times to my colleagues over the last three months. Who's the best in the world at teaching breathing mechanics specific to mechanics? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm biased. Uh, I'm biased because I do have uh, a, a a personal relationship with uh, with Patrick McCune. We worked well um, with one another. Um, I have researched a lot of individuals. Um, yeah. I have talked to a lot of individuals on biomechanics. And I have tried everything kind of under the sun. And the person that I always came back to uh, was was yeah. Patrick and his form of buteco breathing. The reason okay. being is. Yeah, the reason being is because he teaches the appropriate ways of training the, the, the nervous system through biomechanics. So here's my question then. And I actually, um, I, I have a mentorship and Patrick's actually coming on to teach the mentorship, which I'm really excited about. Um, but so here's where the, I, I uh, start to maybe lose it. And that maybe Patrick's evolved this it is, you know, the implications, not just in breath and not just in the physiology of breath, but in the biomechanics of everything else beyond the breath so every time i take a breath obviously my spine is moving my rib cage is moving but so is my shoulder blade and so is my, so is my pelvis 
So I want to start looking deeper and, and looking at, okay, how, how much is this affecting my, uh, my mechanics outside of just the breathing mechanics itself? So that's why I was asking yeah. that question, a little more kind of self-serving to go like, okay, if I'm working with a pro athlete, as you are, knowing right. that where, they, where they spend their time in their exhalation versus exhalation, inhalation versus exhalation cycle is going to implicate in their biomechanics outside of just breath, including walking and running and throwing and everything else. Right. So I'd like to know um, if there's anyone looking at that at a deep level. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a good question. Um, if if Patrick isn't already looking at those things, my guess is that he knows who is and he's learning from them and he's going to integrate it in. Uh, he's a wealth of knowledge, but he's also one of those individuals who he is constantly learning. Um, yep. He is always reading, he is always researching, and he's always trying to find the best. So I'd be interested to see if he's got anything kind of updated on that end. Um, because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I work with him a lot um, in working with, with athletes and working with kind of, you know, executives and working with those who are just looking to, to you know, optimize their biology and, and their psychophysiology, a lot of people are looking mainly at nervous system regulation. Um, so they may not be kind of looking outside of that for other functional capabilities like we're talking about. And so because of that, I think that's where I found most of my domain and interest being. But it'd be interesting to hear if he has anything more to say on that. Yeah, Jay, you are absolutely wonderful. And this was an amazing conversation. I know you provided so much value for our listeners and others. Uh, where should we send people to learn more from you? Yeah, sure. No, and I've appreciated the conversation uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that I have on my website. So if anybody's interested in um, in my website, it's drjwiles.com. So D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S.com. And uh, on there, I kind of talk about a little bit more of the basics for regulating um, HRV. So introducing things like biofeedback, um, introducing kind of more of these basic foundational things from a nutritional standpoint, from an environmental hermetic stressor standpoint. And then I kind of talk about biohack as well. I know we didn't get into that, but there's a lot of really cool technology out there. There's a lot of cool things that once you have the basics down that you can introduce. Uh, and they're a lot of fun. Um, and they, uh, and they're the things that I put on my website that um, tr I've truly seen influence and I don't put anything on there because I'm trying to market or kind of gain affiliation. Um, there are some on there, but I make it very clear on what is affiliated and what's not. But I think that's a good place to start. If you're interested in training in HRV, I still take, um, and, and I'm not trying to kind of say like anything elitist here, but I do take on some select clients as well. I've had to reduce the amount of people that I'm seeing just because of the influx of people um, who, are, who are looking for this type of training. But if you go on to thrive-wellness.com, that's my uh, clinical practice and consulting agency, Thrive Wellness and Performance. Um, you can uh, inquire about any openings that we may have. I'd love to work with you, um, especially if you know, you're know you someone who's really passionate and interested and really committed and motivated to kind of take back control and resiliency of the nervous system. We've got the tools. And then on Instagram, um, other social media outlets, my handle is at Dr. J Wiles. And don't forget to check uh, Dr. J out on Ben Greenfield's podcast where he's oh, yeah, that. <laughs> and, and that's where I found it. So uh, Ben is a, is a great friend and a great gift to the industry. So Dr. J, thank you. I'm incredibly grateful. And uh, as our listeners will be, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Right, ladies and gents, that's a wrap. Hopefully you enjoyed that deep dive with Dr. Jay Wiles. Um, as I said, HRV is, uh, whether you're a coach or anyone ultimately aspiring to be healthy, aspiring to live long, to maybe reduce your stress, to maybe just improve your body composition, understanding the autonomic nervous system and heart rate variability is um, it's a must. I have to say it's a must. And I do this daily. As you guys can see here, I'm wearing my aura ring. That's uh, so how I measure my HRV. I wear an aura ring. Sometimes I even wear a, a Garmin watch, a Phoenix 6. 
And uh, I love it. And it allows me to just gauge the state of my system, including how does my body respond to this training? Right? It's super stressful or is it just a little bit of stress? And how's my body responding to the sleep or the food? And it gives you this real-time data on how recovered I am. And I think it's an imperative addition to everyone's uh, repertoire, understanding HRV is. And one last shout out to our amazing sponsors for today, Buy Optimizers. You guys can head over to buyoptimizers.com slash muscle10 to get hooked up with 10% off. They've been a longtime sponsor of the show. And it, the reason is, is because it works and our audience is responding really, really well. One of the greatest benefits I see if you're eating a high protein diet, it's not just about what you eat, it's what you absorb. So rather than spending all this money on high quality protein, which you should, you should also spend something on digesting it, absorbing it, assimilating it. If I'm eating an eight ounce steak or a 10 ounce steak, I don't just want to use a fraction of it. And they've got some pretty interesting data showing how much uh, improved breakdown we can actually have, especially if you're someone who tends to not chew a lot, right? One of the most important things is, uh, is chewing thoroughly to expose the surface area of the protein to allow the body's enzymes to actually start to break it down. And so I know a lot of us eat a hurry and we eat too much and our stomachs get bloated and, and, and um, we get indigestion. And then that's how leaky gut can also form, right? So which is why we throw in the P3OM as something that uh, can support those things synergistically. Guys, I hope you have an amazing day. I'm so glad you're here and uh, thank you. Thank you for giving me your ear. Thank you for giving me your loyalty. The podcast continues to grow and I would really appreciate you leaving a review and a subscription and share with at least one person you know and love who's aspiring to live their greatest life in a body they love. Hopefully enjoy the kids artwork behind me. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.